Every year, around 10,000 mail-order bride marriages occur in the United States. Maybe like me, you had no idea that in 2005, the U.S. government instituted something called the International Marriage Broker Regulation Act. One news article trying to put a positive spin on this ongoing practice wrote this, the idea that men are buying women and the women have no say and no free will is not true. The mail-order brides are very much in control, or at least they should know what they're doing. That's not very reassuring if you ask me. There are 500, more than 500 organizations, agencies in our country that help facilitate mail-order brides. Now, Genesis 24, it's not exactly a mail-order bride situation, but it's, it's different than what we experience when it comes to the marriage preparations in our culture. But what it gives us here is the longest single episode in the book of Genesis. That's kind of interesting to me. Of all the many stories that we uh, are learning, and we've already covered 2,000 years of human history leading up to this point, the longest episode in the book is not the flood, it's not the creation week, it's not the the near sacrifice of Isaac, it's not anything about Joseph, it is this single episode. And tells us the saga of Abraham's nameless servant leaving Canaan to find a wife for Isaac. As we go with him as readers, we are swept away in a story about God's fabulous, particular providence, human faith, and the hard tensions that we face while we are seeking the will of God in our lives. So let's get right to it. Verse 1. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. What does it mean to be blessed? I mean, if it's describing Abraham as blessed, what what should we make of that? At 140 years old, Abraham was very wealthy, it's true. He had a great house with many servants and riches and flocks and herds and all that. But we know from following his story that the best blessings of his life were spiritual. We know that the greatest blessing he experienced was not how much gold or silver or articles of clothing he had, but that he was the friend of God. There were plenty of rich people in the land of Canaan. There was the king of Sodom, there was Abimelech, there was all these other people. But Abraham stood apart from all of them because he was the friend of God. He had been given gifts by God. He knew personal intimacy with God. He knew the favor of God. He knew the word of God. He knew knew the person God, not just some far-off God that was carved, you know, out of wood or stone. No, he knew the true and living God. The best blessings of his life were spiritual. Being blessed in all things didn't mean that Abraham continually got more of everything. After all, at this point... It's true. He, he has a lot of stuff. That is true. But being blessed in everything didn't mean that he was continually getting more. For example, he still had only one son and then the one that had to be cast out of his home. He didn't own any more land than he did the last time we saw him. In fact, all he owns is a single field with a tomb in it. Of all this land that God had promised Abraham, that's all that he owns. And so in this verse, we see that God's blessing for us isn't necessarily more stuff. Now, we find ourselves in a time and a culture that is all about more stuff and that the mark of success and the mark of happiness and the mark of achieving our goals is piling up more 
things for ourselves, whether that's possessions, whether that's prominence, whether that's some sort of title or, you know, some kind of marker that society says, oh, you have more and therefore you're blessed. But that isn't what the Bible teaches about living the Christian life. Psalm 1 describes the blessed life as one that is in pursuit of God and is keeping pace with God, one that is continually growing in the understanding of the Lord and His ways, one full of heavenly success. And of course, we can turn to the New Testament and look at the Beatitudes and take a look at what Jesus says is a blessed life. Verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. In this text, the focus of the story is this nameless servant. He's sent out by the father to do his duty on behalf of the son. And so it's a very quick leap, a very easy way for us to see that he becomes a wonderful type, an example to us of our own service to our master, to the Lord. He is a fantastic example of of the principles necessary to serve God faithfully and expectantly and prayerfully and effectively. But at the same time, it's not all just pie in the sky. It's not all just philosophical. We also see in his story how to navigate real life tensions that we are going to face as we exercise the Christian faith. Life is difficult. We all know that. And, and even as we you know, seek to honor the Lord and are, are listening for the Lord and walking with the Lord, there's, there's real life tensions that we have to deal with. And that's demonstrated in this guy's story as well. And that's a comforting thing. It's essential to Abraham that his son Isaac not marry a Canaanite woman. Once again, Genesis gives us a subtle teaching on biblical marriage. Don't marry outside the family. Of course, we're not speaking literally. We're applying these examples on the spiritual level. First Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to believers in the city of Corinth. And in that first letter, he says this outright. He says he's speaking to husbands and wives. And and at one point he's addressing the, the wives, but he's speaking about marriage more broadly. But here's what he says. He says, a woman is free to be married to anyone she wants only in the Lord. And so obviously that is true for Christian men as well. You are free to be married to whoever you want as long as it is a heterosexual monogamous relationship in the Lord, meaning only a born-again Christian. And so you single people who are looking for a spouse or might be looking for a spouse someday, stay within the spiritual family of Christians. Don't settle for an unbelieving Canaanite is what Abraham would say to you from this text. It's not going to go well for you. It's not going to end well. We notice two things about this commission Abraham gives his servant. First, the master invests a great deal of authority in him. He lets the servant act as his ambassador, his agent, going in his name on a very important, very significant quest. Remember, this isn't just about, hey, my son needs to get married. This is about the line of the Messiah. This is about preserving the the lineage of this family that God has said, through this family, all the world is going to be blessed. So this is not just even a run-of-the-mill matchmaking situation. Isaac 
is the, is the only heir of Abraham that is going to carry on this name. And so this is a very important uh, quest that he's being put on with eternal significance. We, too, have been given great authority to go in the name of the Lord and do His will with His authority. Now, most of us feel unqualified, and you may have a lot of questions about serving the Lord like this servant did, but our master is confident, like Abraham was confident here, that you are adequate to do what he has asked you to do. And we know from the rest of Scripture that God provides all that we need to do the things that He asks us to do. He provides the guidance and the principles to direct you in your efforts. God never asks you to do something that He will not help you to accomplish. That would be a cruel thing. That would be an unloving thing. That, that is contrary to His character and nature. He is our yoke fellow. So he doesn't say, hey, let's go plow, thi plow this field over here together, and then he just sits down and drags, and you have to like drag him along. That's not it at all. Believe me, the Lord is carrying the heavy end of all the things he asks us to do. Now, the second thing we notice here is that this commission was going to be a long haul. Uh, I don't know if you are the kind of people who like a road trip. I'm not a road trip kind of guy, but this was quite a long haul. This servant would be traveling over 450 miles down lots of new roads with lots of uncertainty and questions along the way. The Christian life can be described the same. It's a long road, but the master knows the way. He knows where we're headed. And so we have to follow his guidance in order to get where we need to go. It's pretty likely that this servant had never been to Abraham's land. I mean, Abraham's a super old guy now, and he had been given lots and lots of servants in Egypt and other places in the land of Canaan. And so I think the picture given to us here is that the servant is being sent on this essential quest, but he's like, I've never been there. I've never traveled that road. And Abraham's like, you can do it. I'm going to show you the way to go. And what a perfect picture for us. If you're a Christian here tonight, all of us are walking the, the road of Christianity for the first time right? No, no, no previous life where you did Christianity and it didn't work out, and so now you get to do it again. That's, that's not how life works. But the Lord says, hey, you follow me. I'm going to lead you where you want to go. I have carved out a path for you. Just, just follow my directions. Go where we're going. I know the destination, and if you follow me, we'll get there, and it's going to be great. Lots of uncertainty. It's a long haul, but the Lord is with us. Verse 5, the servant said to him, Okay, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? One of the things I enjoy about this servant is that you can tell he's a regular guy with honest questions. He's not cynical, but he's also not unrealistic about what might happen. Uh, he's not just thinking everything is going to automatically be smooth sailing. He's thoughtfully working out the situation in his mind, and he's, he's realizing the responsibility and the opportunity that he has, but he's also recognizing how much of it lies outside of his control. And so he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board, but what, what happens when this stranger who's never met me says, I don't really want to go 500 miles with some guy I've never met to meet some man I've never met to marry him? That's a pretty honest question. And so this guy's great. He, he's, he's thinking through the situation. He's not being cynical. He's full of faith. He believes in this quest. And we'll see, he believes God will go before him. He believes God answers prayer. He believes God will direct his people and provide what is necessary. And even here, we, we can see his faith. 
He calls this mystery bride. They don't know who they're going to meet. It's not, Abraham doesn't say, go and get Rebecca. He says, you need to go find someone in my family. It's a mystery woman. But he says, what? The woman. He says, what if the woman uh, is unwilling to go? And so already he believes in his heart that there is a specific woman whom God has prepared for Isaac and set apart for her to be a part of this incredible story of redemption. And, and that this woman will be identifiable to him, the servant. And so we see just a, a, a great combination of faith and practicality in this guy. But he also acknowledges here that free, human beings are free to choose. We like to say around here, you're a free moral agent. He says, what if she is unwilling to come? She might say no to his offer, just like as we go out as Christians on a mission to, to make disciples and to bring people into the bride, the church, and, and bring them into the kingdom through the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit, we go out to fetch those people, right? But sometimes those people say no to our offer. And so he says, what happens if she says no? Verse 6, Abraham answered, make sure that you don't take my son back there. Another translation puts it this way, watch yourself. Abraham's really serious about not letting Isaac leave the promised land. He says, under no circumstances should Isaac leave the promised land. We need to think about what God prioritizes in our lives. God has priorities for your life, your actual real life, the choices you make, those things that make your regular day-to-day -day life, your family life. God cares about those things and has intentions for you in them and has priorities in your life. Those priorities of God will often not be in the same order that we naturally place things because he's an all-knowing God who has, is working out a, a fantastic eternal plan for this world and for your life. We simply don't have enough information to be right about all of our own plans, which is why we're supposed to go God's way and lean not on our own understanding, right? It's not that we always choose wrong. It's just that it's impossible for us to always choose right because we're not God. And God says, hey, some of my ways are beyond your ways. My, my, my thoughts are, are beyond your understanding. And the human heart is inclined to go towards destruction, not go towards life. And so we need to think about what God prioritizes in our lives. For example, these are just a couple of, let me throw these out there. Does God prioritize your kid's school district over what church he wants you to be a part of? Which is more important to him, your neighborhood or your workplace? Those are real decisions that you have to make. Those are real places that you live your life. And I can't answer that for you. I can't tell you, here's the flow chart of God's priorities. If you can't do this, then do this. If you can't do this, then do this and, and range it this way. This, this group first, first your, you know, your neighborhood. Then you, I can't do that for you because those answers are going to vary from person to person depending on how the Lord wants to lead you and your family and what he wants to do in your lives. And I'm not the Holy Spirit, but there is a Holy Spirit who wants to direct you in those things. We see in this case something of God's priorities, because in this case, it would be better for Isaac to not have a wife than to leave the promised land to get one. You see what's happening here? Abraham says, hey, we, we have to get Isaac a wife, and we understand that, yeah, he needs a wife because we have to get to the Messiah, and the Lord is going to accomplish that through families and through a very specific family, this family. 
Isaac needs a wife. But more of a priority at this point in, in Isaac's life is to stay in the promised land. Why? We don't know. We don't know a lot about Isaac. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to handle going to Babylon at this point of his life. It seems to be, if we compare chapters uh, 23 and 24, it seems like maybe Isaac's not even living with Abraham at this point. It seems like Abraham is up in Hebron and Isaac is way down in Bir Lahai Roy. And so we just don't know very much about Isaac. I mean, he loved the Lord and he honored the Lord, but think about it. What do we know about Isaac? Do we know if he was a man of really strong faith? We're, we're just not sure. But at this point, this was the priority, do not take him out of the land. And so from that, we, we extrapolate that God has priorities for you and for me. And you as an individual are responsible to find out what those priorities are, not to just let someone else tell you or just copy what somebody else's priorities are, but for you to go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me understand your intentions and your directives for my life individually, even if it doesn't look like your directives for the people in my extended family or the people in my community or, or anything like that. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. And so it's clear that Abraham believes in God's providence, that it is operative in the world, that it's doing lots of things. But it's also clear that he does not believe in what is today called meticulous determinism. Meticulous determinism is that the idea that God is forcibly controlling every molecule of every living being, including you, uh, to do all of the things that you do that God is, is effectively forcing everyone on the planet to do and think and say the things that they are doing. God is not forcing human beings to do the things that they do. As I said, we are free moral agents. The Bible's clear on that. And God is so sovereign and so powerful that he is somehow able to do both his will and allow for us to make choices. To those determinists who say that our view of free will limits sovereignty of God, we would answer that they limit the power of God, not to mention the goodness, the justice, and the mercy of God. And so this is an issue that maybe you've gotten into discussion with some of your friends, those who are more drawn to what we would call a Calvinistic theology, eventually come to a point where they say, well, there is no free will. You know, God is effectively forcing everything to happen. He's sovereign, so he's making everything happen. That is not taught in the Bible and brought to its logical conclusion, it makes God an unjust, unmerciful, unloving monster. Christians uh, today have incredible opportunities to serve the Lord. And there's wonderful comfort here in verse 7. When God calls us into service, we see that he goes before us in a providential way. And that's why it's so important that we concern ourselves with where he's leading us individually, not just what opportunity we could do. Abraham had lots of servants, lots of them. 
but only a few were meant to be about this particular business at this point. We saw chapters ago, he had 318 armed men and for a different job, hey, we have to go rescue Lot and all of these people. He took all of those guys and they went and did something. But now of all his servants and all the household, he, we, he just needed these happy few to be about this business. And we have a lot, a lot of opportunities, endless opportunities of what you could be involved in when it comes to ministry or serving the Lord or, or doing something on behalf of Jesus, right? There's endless number of ideas of how you can engage and serve God. That's great. But what's good for us is to go where he sent us and where he's leading us. That's what matters. We see this idea demonstrated very clearly in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Paul and his friends are trying very hard to get into Asia. Why? So they can preach the gospel there. That's a great idea. There's nothing wrong with that idea, except that God did not want that group of guys to do that at that point. And so it says that the Holy Spirit forbade them from preaching the gospel in Asia. And they said, well, we'll go over here. And they said, no, you can't do it. And it's a startling thing to think, wait, what? The Holy Spirit won't let me preach the gospel? And God says, that's right because I don't need this group of people today to go into Asia to do that. I need you guys to go to Greece. That's what I've been working on. That's providentially how I've been working. And we see that he went before them to Macedonia and brought them there. The Lord had primed the pump already. And, and because of that, the gospel is brought to Europe. And we can draw a direct line from that moment to our own salvation, most of us here tonight. And so Luckily, Paul was humble and godly enough to do what the Lord wanted instead of what he thought was a good idea, instead of what he wanted to do. And the result is fantastic. That doesn't mean that God had abandoned Asia. He didn't. It just meant like, hey, Paul, you and your guys in this time right now, I want you guys over here. And he's got other things working out all over the world. In verse 7, we have a gentle reminder of God's gracious work in our lives. He brought us out of the household of sin and brought us into the kingdom of promise. He's the God who speaks to us and swears to us by his love. And now he sends us back into a lost and dying world to invite others out and to join us that they might be brought into this glorious household of faith too. Verse nine, so the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. A lot of tension here. The servant has a great responsibility. The trip would be challenging. They had a lot of expectations, but in the end, they recognize that the woman might just refuse to join the family. Along the way, there would be constant unknowns, many unknowns. So the servant would need to stay focused and alert and keep his master's directions in mind. Maybe the servant found himself thinking, this is never gonna work. This is not a good plan. This is not going to happen. It's impossible. It probably felt that way at certain points. We feel that way sometimes, right? As we try to follow the Lord and obey the duties that we've been given in the Christian life. In those moments, remember that God goes before us and remember that God rewards those who seek him and remember that he will make your path straight and everything is possible for the one who believes. Those are promises of scripture. Verse 10, the scripture took 10 of his master's camels and with all kinds of his master's goods in hand, he went to Aram Naharaim to Nahor's town. Your translation may say he took all his master's goods, but what is meant is that it was all sorts. It can also be rendered this way. Every good thing of his master was in his hand. 
Uh, that is just a great snapshot of what God has done for us as his ambassadors. He has not only set us, sent us out in his name and sent us out with great authority, but he sends us out with every good thing, the unyielding heavenly supplies of his grace and his gifting and his truth and all these wonderful things. You and I have all kinds of our master's goods, not to be hoarded to ourselves, but used and delivered to others. Verse 11, at evening, the time when women went down to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. This servant is a practical guy. The goal was to find a wife, so he went to where women would be found. Practicality and planning doesn't make us less faith-filled. Being spirit-led, which is essential, being spirit-filled, spirit-led, doesn't mean we're not thoughtful and that we're just weirdly mystical all the time. At the same time, neither should we try to manufacture ministry and then claim God did it. The servant didn't go and just grab the first woman he found and said, you're coming with us and force her to come back with her. And look, the, the Lord provided. And sadly, a lot of Christian ministry can happen that way, where effectively we you know, churches kidnap money from people or they, they kidnap volunteers or they, they, they kind of try to force these things and they say, look what the Lord has provided. And it's like, did he? Or, or did you just try to manufacture a result? What does the servant do? This entourage finally makes it to where they want to go and he says, now we wait. They, they planned, they prepared, and now, okay, now we wait. I think it would have been pretty comical to see him trying to hold back 10 thirsty camels from drinking when they're at a well. I've never tried to train camels. I've never tried to corral 10 of them. But, uh, you know, these are real people with real animals, and these are thirsty camels. We're going to see that they're thirsty in a minute. And so have you ever tried to keep your dog from eating his food, your dog from drinking your water? It's probably not, not a pleasant thing. So I don't know what kind of weird noises camels make, but they're probably huffing and puffing about it. But we see that the servant is waiting. He wants to be in step with God's providence, not getting out ahead. And so he's patient. Verse 12, Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so I may drink. And who responds, drink and I'll water your camels. Also, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Should we pray this way? We see this passage as a type of how we're to serve the Lord. We're excited about the faithfulness of this guy. We want to be like him. We see the great principles working themselves out through this faithful man. We admire his reliance on God. And as I've suggested, God wants to specifically direct us in our real life choices, things like spouses and where to live and ministries to be a part of, all of that. So should we mimic this style of prayer, asking for tangible proofs of what God wants us to choose or to do? Well, Jesus in the gospel said, an evil generation demands a sign. And he said it right after saying, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, at that time, Jesus was speaking specifically to those who didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah, which he obviously was. But he was demonstrating that there, had be, there is now a difference between those who have the completed word of God that they can refer to and those who didn't. Abraham's servant did not have one book of the Bible. He did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
we do as Christians, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is given to us as a counselor and a teacher of all things and convicts us of right and wrong, and we're told reveals the things of God to us. And so if we're all constantly praying, Lord, give me a sign, sometimes in Christianese we say we put out a fleece and we want God to do something, manifest in some way to prove himself, effectively we're saying we don't care about the Holy Spirit, we don't need his influence, we don't need to listen to his instruction or his leading, instead God, show us a sign. And Jesus says, yeah, that's not how it works anymore. We have these powerful sources of direction which inform our decision-making today, the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, the community of believers around us that are used to sharpen us like iron. But when choosing between two goods, right? Lord, I want to serve you. I've got this choice before me. What should I do? Should I go preach the gospel in Asia or should I go to Macedonia, right? Using that Acts example. In trying to determine what the Lord wants, we are to go to the Word of God, seek the Spirit of God, and go to prayer, not asking God to jump through hoops that we set up for Him, but asking Him to give us peace. That's what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says. As we choose to love God and honor Him and listen to what He has said, then He is able to conform us and give us the mind of Christ, and we become fuller and fuller with the knowledge of His will which then gives us all that we need to make heavenly decisions that do align with God's desires. The focus of the servant's prayer was not, Lord, let me off the hook and make it easy for me. It was, God, I want to do what I've been called to do. I am unable to do it in my own power, so I trust you to be with me and to do this great thing to bless my master and his son and his future bride, so help me to be that profitable servant. Notice what he prays, not, God, bring me the most beautiful woman in town. He prays, Lord, bring me a lady who is full of kindness and compassion, a lady who is willing to serve and bless those around her. Because we know from studying this book that this bride would need to be ready for a strange life, uh, a, a life of pilgrimage, a life based on faith and service and others. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. In this case, God's providence worked out with millisecond precision. Before he finished praying, there she was. That is incredible. At other points in in divine history, God's providence are put on hold for decades or centuries. For example, his providential promises and work for the nation of Israel is currently on hold, but it will be accomplished down to the specific day once it's picked back up again during what we call the time of Jacob's trouble. So why pray at all when God's providence can work this well? Well, the Lord uses human agents to accomplish much of his will. Without prayer, Rebecca would have seemed like just every other lady at the well that day. As we seek the Lord, he's able to reveal his movements and these opportunities that he's working out in our midst. God has, in his infinite wisdom, decided to include us in the things that he does. And we see this interplay here. The incredible, miraculous providence is happening in conjunction with a willing servant who took the trip and made himself available. Verse 17, then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little water from your jug. Now, this would have been an interesting scene because this is an entourage that is well, stru- well stocked for the long trip. He would have had water skins and, and things to drink from. 
They would have had all their gear to, to make a camp and to tend the camels. And Rebecca would have been able to see it. And yet here he is asking for a drink. Verse 18, she replied, drink, my Lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. Notice what she didn't offer. She doesn't say, drink, my Lord, and I'll, and I'll let you, you know, and I'll water the camels too. He, he's waiting for her to offer about the camels, but at very first, no such offer comes. One commentator points out what a moment full of just pressure and anxiety this must have been for him. I wonder how long did he drink? It's like just like slow and long, like just kind of looking like, and you know, this is a, these are real people in a real situation. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. And she quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. And she drew water for all his camels. Scholars estimate this likely would have been around two or 300 gallons of water. Rebecca brings back and forth 2,500 pounds of, of water from the well to the trough. And remember, I had never thought of this before. She did it while a bunch of other servants are just standing around. He's traveling with servants. He's not with 10 camels by himself. What a heart she has. Both she and Abraham's servant give us such great examples of how to honor God in our service with hearts full of faith and humility and, and readiness. Verse 21, while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. But wasn't it obvious? What's he waiting for? I would have been like, yeah, man, like that's it. It's done. But even though she did the thing he asked for, the sign, he still waited to make sure that everything about her was in line with what his master had said, right? He does not know who she's related to yet. She still had to be one of Abraham's family. That was still the command of the master. So even though she fulfilled this somewhat miraculous sign, he says, we're gonna wait. I'm gonna wait to see if this is in line with what my master has said. The sign had to fit the word of the master, had to fit the command. And this guy is just a great example of how to balance faith and fidelity to the word and seeking the Lord and moving forward with thoughtfulness and expectation. And verse 21 also reminds us that it is the Lord who makes our work a success, not us. Verse 22, as the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and, he, and for her wrists, two bracelets weighing 10 shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? He asked, please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? This is quite a tip for her service. It'd be worth at least $7,500 today. Recently, a group of businessmen went to a restaurant and there's something called the $100 dinner challenge. I don't know. And the idea is you go and you leave a $100 tip. So this group of, of uh, I think they're real estate agents, they went together and they decided they were going to do this challenge and they ended up giving their server $2,200 in gratuity. What a great story. Except for that, then the restaurant fired her for not giving that tip to be pooled among all the wait staff. So it... Thanks a lot, you guys. <laughs> so anyway, Abraham's servant gives her this incredible, just, just generous gift. He, he's, he's saying, hey, I'm, he's assuming that this is going to work out, but he's being really generous toward her. Even if Rebecca wasn't the lady he was hoping for, he was going to give this to her. Verse 24, she answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. 
Man, what a remarkable lady Rebecca is. She immediately extends hospitality and provision to these strangers. She doesn't wait for someone else to offer it. She's ready to welcome them. Between her and Abraham's servant, we see absolutely no stinginess, no covetousness, just warmth and generosity and service. Verse 26, and then the man knelt low and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Our God does not withhold kindness from those who walk with him. Looking back, Abraham's servant recognized the incredible providence of the Lord, the tensions of how would he find her and how would he get there and would she say yes and how could it all happen? Those were all real tensions that he was going to have to work through and deal with, but they weren't dealt with by him. They were dealt with by the Lord's ability. And so through this story, we see that God can be absolutely trusted to lead you right where you need to go in life. He knows what we need. He knows what is best. He knows all the things that we can't possibly know. And his great desire is to include us in his providential work. And so as we seek him and seek his kingdom, he says, all of these things are going to be added to you. They're all going to be provided for you. And the Bible says that God delights to give us his kingdom. And so our part is to be ready for service. And to focus our attention on the word which directs us to fill our hearts with faith, knowing that the Lord has gone before us and walks with us and wants us to experience his providence and expect him to be engaging our lives in all sorts of ways. What a mind-blowing series of events this all was. And then, verse 28, the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. She bolts, and he's just left there. And he's left there until someone comes back. He doesn't know where to go. This is, this is hilarious that after all of this, she's just gone. She becomes the original runaway bride. What must this servant have been thinking in this moment? He is left at the well while Cinderella disappears into the night. That's literally what's happening. It's nighttime. She has probably spent, how long do you think it takes to, to fill 200 gallons of water and bring them back and forth? It's late now. And she's just gone. And so for now, we end on the cliffhanger because our time has expired. You can never tell. He got left, so we're getting left. So listen, you can never tell what might happen next in your walk of faith, but we know the Lord is with us. And so we can have joy even when things are out of our control. Our part is to be ready, to serve, to seek the Lord, to surrender our paths to him, and to know that he is going to do a great and wonderful work in our lives.